a, a really smart recruiter who had some foresight, uh, she sent me an email and they were kind of like, what, what the email said, essentially, I, I think I probably still have it somewhere. It was like, Jay-Z is looking for someone who can do X, Y, and Z and has an interest in A, B, and C. Do you know anyone who might be interested or would you be interested, right? And so, and I, I'm guessing that's a recruiter tactic, right? Do you know anyone who's interested? And I, I was like, I, you know, if, if this is a real email, I might be interested, right? And so that that led to like me making the, like the difficult decision, especially like, because I, I was happy at Major League Soccer, but left for a, a lot, a lot, a lot more money, right? So part of it is ambition, but, but, but then the, the other piece of it, it was like, uh, just the idea of, you know, at that point in time, like what Jay meant and does mean to the culture, the opportunity to do work, especially the sort of work that I was going to be doing there was, was, and was once in life and had to have an impact on the culture at large to, to work with a, a black entrepreneur like that, who's created what he's created, that there was an allure there, right? And that's, that's what I told the, the folks at MLS, like, man, I love it here. I'm happy here. But this is an opportunity. It's, it's tough to say no to this opportunity, and, and especially like what it became during my time there, too. Hello, I'm your host, Mike Gelb, and this is the Consumer VC Podcast brought to you by Propeller Industries, the leading strategic finance and accounting partner for venture stage companies. On this show, we discuss the intersection of venture capital and consumer innovation. If you're enjoying this show, please subscribe on YouTube or whichever platform you're viewing this content. And if you want the full experience, highly recommend checking out the newsletter at theconsumervc.com where I share weekly updates of all the fundraising news that's happening in the world of consumer and you'll be the first to know when a new episode drops. All content and episodes are for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not investment advice. Thank you, Sarah McGuire, for the intro to our guest today, Samir Lane. Samir has one of the most diverse resumes that bounces around sports and entertainment. He was an Olympian who trained and qualified while being a full-time law student. He worked for the Washington Wizards, Washington Capitals, MLS, Jay-Z, Will Smith, and is now the founder and general partner of Freedom Trail Capital. There's quite a few themes in this episode. One I was particularly interested in learning from Samir was the intersection of talent, celebrity, and consumer brands. What makes, for example, an ideal partnership between brand and talent? I really, really love this one. Samir, thanks again for coming on. Without further ado, here's Samir. Samir, thank you so much for joining me here today. How are you? Doing well, doing well. Can't complain. It's, it's a little cool in, in supposedly sunny Southern California, but I'm doing well. I know. Uh, cool and rainy, right? I mean, yes. I guess this is I guess this is like the first day that we've had in a, in a little bit with some sunshine. Um, yeah. um, but um, but anyway, yeah, it's it has been it has been pretty cool. Um, I want to I want to start out just asking where does kind of like your drive come from? Um, because, you know, wh wh when we last spoke and of course, like as we've like gotten to know each other was pretty remarkable about your journey. Um, and of course, we're going to go through the entire um, the the entireness of your journey and, and, and where you are now with your VC fund. But you were in law school full time. I have friends that went through law school and holy shit, it's like freaking hard. Yeah, um, yeah, and not, and, not, and not it's so a lot of work much. and it's a lot of work. It, it's a ton of work. And you were also like flying around the world competing in um, in trying to qualify for the Olympics. And and eventually you did and become an Olympian. Where did that 
where did that kind of when you're kind of living like almost like a double life in that you know you're 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 kind of in law school and then also um competing to become an olympian where did that kind of drive for you kind of stem from yeah yeah i think it's twofold right i think at some point for me i was intent and i still am and always have been intent on just seeing how deep the rabbit hole goes right making sure that i can get as much out of my skill level, my talent, the efforts I put in as possible. And so when I got to law school, I, of course, was an athlete in college. I had an extra season of eligibility because I had an injury my senior year. So I went to the University of Texas. I used my last season of collegiate eligibility there. When I finished there, I still felt as if I was improving and getting better as an athlete, in particular in the triple jump, which is my event. And so when I got to law school, it was kind of like, I haven't achieve my maximum potential. I haven't tapped out yet. So let me see if I can't um, go ahead and like continue competing and try and like maximize everything I can get out of this, you know? And so a part of it was just trying to make sure that as long as I was continuing to learn and grow and develop and improve, I wanted to keep doing that, right? Like I, I'm always down to like keep growing. And then the other part of it is I've got two, two uh, parents who came to the States from Haiti and always understanding like you know, family-wise, I have two younger brothers, so setting an example for them, but then looking at the example my parents and my family set for me, as as most like first-generation parents say, that that's always a big deal. But um, a lot of it, that morphed into this concept of like, I'm still learning, I'm still growing. I've got to like learn as much as I can and grow as much as I can in whatever it is, right? It might be the trouble jump, it might be something else. Yeah, no, I mean... Um... Uh, I, I really appreciate that and just find it like so impressive that you were kind of doing both things. Um, yeah, I don't advise once. it though. I don't, I never <laughs> advise like, I, you know, when a couple people like, if you're in law school, just focus on law school. <laughs> it's, it's one of the things that, that I always like, just, just, don't worry about other stuff. Like there'll be time for that, but you know, time, time was of the essence. When did you know on the, on the athlete triple jump side, um, that you thought that you, hey, I might be one of the best in the world at this. And it's actually worth kind of pursuing, you know, kind of above like like the collegiate, you know, uh, um, uh, sector. Yeah, yeah. You know what? As I said, there, there are levels to this, right? So like in college, I, I was an NCAA All-American my junior year. And I, I had one conference and I'd done, I set the conference record and the school record. But then when I got to the University of Texas for my extra season of eligibility, I was like, oh, this is, kind of a step up. Like when I went to nationals, like this is a step up for when I'm used to competing in. And then even from there, of course, like doing it internationally and professionally, it's, it's several steps up at that point. Right. And so what I realized was a, after I got my master's degree at Texas, I went and I, and I spoke to the Haitian national team because both my parents are from there again. And I went down to Pan American games in Rio de Janeiro, which is my first international competition. And j just seeing, you know, the level people were competing at, the rate at which I was improving, where I was like, I was nowhere near ready to like actually stand alongside people competing internationally from, you know, and it's the Pan American games, right? So it's a huge, huge international competition. So I wasn't necessarily ready to stand on my own, but being there and seeing, again, in the triple jump, how far people were jumping, how fast they were, how big they were. I was, so I, at some point that exposure helped me to realize like, I'm not as far away as it might seem. Um, thankfully in the triple jump, like you measure in centimeters internationally, right? So I could see like, all right, if I can improve this much, I can qualify. I can like meet the, the minimum qualifying standard for, for the 2008 Olympics. Cause I went to the 2007 Pan American games in Rio. So, you know, it, it was, 
in between my master's degree in law school, when I went to the Pan Am Games and I was like, I think I can do this. And then I also saw like what the international standard was to qualify for a world championship, to qualify for an Olympic Games and what, what that took. And then at that point, I was like, you know, if I jump my best, I'm not that far off. If I can improve and consistently be at or near what is now my best and improve like my upper limit, I can actually I can actually like make a go of it. Right. And so, of course, again, you know, doing it while balancing law school, you're probably not improving at the rate you want to improve at. But um, after my first sum, my first year of law school, I competed that summer. I missed qualifying for the Beijing Olympics by, you know, like, like a few inches, maybe several inches, which, again, in the grand scheme of things, especially triple jump isn't that far off. And then after my second year of law school, I was, I'd improved enough to be top 10 in the world. I think my I, number seven in the world. Right. And so, um, and that enabled me to qualify for the 2009 world championships in Berlin. Um, and yeah, I, I like, it was really like that first experience in 07 in Rio where I was like, I think I'm close, but then just working diligently, right? Like in spite of torts class or criminal law or anything like that, working diligently to improve and, and just understanding the, the weaknesses that I had as an athlete meant that I could actually improve my performance to the place where I could qualify for an Olympics or world championships or were, compete alongside the world's best. What was it like in, in, in 2012, 2012 London game? We can get some like behind the scenes, what it's like to like actually like be an Olympian there. Yeah, um, it, it was it was surreal for, for starters. A part of it is just because, you know, you've got eight to 10,000 athletes from around the world, um, all at the best of whatever sport they, they compete in. And so being in that, you know, in that environment, it's, it, it is electric, like people say, but also like walking through the stadium for the opening ceremonies is as surreal and dreamlike as people envision it to be like, like you grow watching the Olympics, you're like, dang, I, I, that's probably so cool. It, it is that. And then some, and so, but then like, you know, in between like the McDonald's is a huge sponsor at the Olympic games, believe it or not. And they have like an, a McDonald's inside the Olympic village, but to be, you know, in between sessions or competitions and you're in line at the McDonald's behind a Kobe Bryant or a Russell Westbrook or something like that, who, here, you know what I mean? But because it's the Olympics, everyone is an Olympian. Everyone stands shoulder to shoulder. Everyone is among the best of, of their particular sport. That that was pretty cool to see too, right? And so um, it's one of those things where unforgettable experience to have my family there. Um, I trained with my 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 now wife. So she was there. She also competed in that in that Olympic Games as well. So both like to, to have everyone there to experience that with family, with friends. Some of my closest friends came there, but um, yeah, man, like, especially, especially in London. And so I've competed around the world, but to be in a place like London and I, for me, it helped because it was an English speaking country. Right. And so, you know, we could go out into the city and just experience it and just feel the vibe, the electric vibe that the Olympics brought to all of London um, and not like be like, you know, sheltered in place in the Olympic Village, which a lot of times folks are. And so to, to experience the entire city, j just having that buzz and then in the stadium to compete in the stadium field, like all, all of it, every time I think about it, you're like, man, that that was once in a lifetime experience is an understatement, but um, definitely, definitely unforgettable. And also it, it made it made all the sacrifice worthwhile. It made um, you know, at that time, I told the law firm that I was supposed to work at that I wasn't going to be coming. It made that decision worthwhile. 
Um, so it's so a little, little bit of vindication as well, too. I'd imagine they were probably the first law firm to be turned down because, hey, I'm actually going to the Olympics, right? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I imagine they are. They're among the first. And they, they understood, too, because I spent the summer working there in between my second and third year of law school. And so I would like I would train before heading down to the city to work there. And then I think I went to one competition and I had a few of like the, the associates and lawyers at the firm come to watch me compete in New York City. So, you know, in, in that time and, and I had a, a year gap between law school and when I was supposed to start the firm. And so in that time, I let them know, like, you know, I'm, I'm not coming. They, they understood and appreciated it, to be honest. So, I mean, besides I, I mean, obviously you were training, you were competing um, on the triple jump and obviously in the Olympics um, and, and, and everything during that uh, during that period. At the same time, um, like we've said, you were in law school. You were you were obviously um, um, going to go work at a big firm. But what why why did you decide to go to law school? What were like what was your thinking when it came to what you wanted your career to entail? Because there is like an interesting thread, at least in like the first part of your career, which it's like mending law and a, and a bit of law and then also like sports. But was that kind of like the intention in terms of like you're actually mending like like your passion area, it seemed in in sports or I mean, obviously you, you were you, um, and, and, and being wanted to be involved in like that side of the business. But thinking what are the ways actually to do that? Yep. Yeah. No, it's, it's funny that that was like precisely my goal all along. Right. And so in going to law school, part of it was like, I was always attracted to the law. And also I, I have, again, two, two parents who emigrated to the U.S., right? So at some point it's like, you're a doctor, you're a lawyer, or maybe you're an accountant, right? And so I didn't want to be a doctor or accounting, so I was like, I'm going to law school. But then on top of that, the goal for me was always, if I'm going to law school, I also want to marry it with something I actually like doing or I'm passionate about or I'm knowledgeable about. And so even, to be honest, when I looked for a law firms that I was going to spend my, my summers at, um, I worked only only specifically and I looked for and sent my resume only to firms that had sports teams or sports divisions or did sports law. And so even though like you learn in law school, like there's no such thing as sports law, it's just it's corporate law that happens to have sports clients. You, you <laughs> But like going to law school, like I want to do sports law and you're like it's, it's criminal law or it's but, you know, going to these firms, I wanted to make sure I actually got to work with sports clients or on sports matters. And so. That, that was always the goal. And so to your point, in going to law school, is like, I'm going to go from here. I take my knowledge. I'm going to work at a league or team or at a firm that had sports clients. But the goal absolutely was, and exactly like I said, it, it was like, if I'm going to law school, I do want to do work that I'm passionate about or excited about, especially if I'm going to put in the hours anyways at a firm. I want to, I want to make sure I'm actually like enthused about the work that I'm doing and the time I'm spending doing it. How did you wind up at... Uh- Monumental sports. Um, I that's like a that's like a, as as you know, um, huge huge fan of of monumental sports because I've I, I I grew up in the DC area. I'm a massive Capitals fan. Uh, still, I still I still need to talk to them about about why they're moving the Capitals and Wizards to uh, Alexandria, Virginia. But I'll, I'll tell. I got when we're not we're not recording. I've got some insights there. I might, might be able to share. Wonderful, <laughs> wonderful. Yeah. Oh, that's great. That's great to hear. Uh, but how how. How'd you wind up there and and, and working for uh, that group? Yeah, so goal was like at the tail end of my athletic career, I was just looking for ways to kind of make my transition as seamless as possible. I think a lot of times, look, I wasn't an NBA player, wasn't making NBA money anywhere near it, not even a fraction of it. But that's in general, like when your identity is so tied up in being an athlete or whatever it is, a lot of times people struggle with that transition. 
I think for me, it was easier because I'd gone to law school. I know I always know what the long term vision was and then transitioned from that into, you know, into athletics and then back into my professional career. But I still wanted to make sure, like, as I was like moving away from from sport that I had something to go into. Right. And so I had a I'd spoken at a sports forum in Haiti, We had like a sports development forum in Haiti and met someone there who um, ha- had crossed paths with monumental sports and in particular with Ted Leonsis before. And so spoke to Ted about my objectives of working in sport, spoke to Ted about my background. Um, sp- Ted also loves everything Georgetown, thankfully. And so, and I'd gone to Georgetown for law school. Yep. And, and then they also on the legal side had a, had a very, 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 very lean legal team and, and needed some help in a very particular area. And so it, it was more serendipitous than anything, right? It, it was someone who has a passion for helping people in TED and, and someone who made that introduction. But then I think the timing just worked out perfectly, right? Because they needed someone who could do legal slash legislative affairs work, right? Sit at the intersection of D.C., the city council, Capitol Hill, and the monumental sports teams. And so I spend a lot of time, maybe you call it lobbying, but, but doing some legal work, but sitting at the intersection and helping to make sure that initiatives around city council that would affect or impact the team in some way or another could either go through as seamlessly as possible or were at least were heard and managing that relationship, right? But, but I, I'd say a lot of it is, a bunch, some of it is luck, some of it is making sure that uh, people understood, like, I could add value in a very particular way. And then the timing and time, timing was a big help, too. But, yeah, it just so happened that someone introduced me to Ted. Ted was willing to meet and they introduced me to his his uh, general counsel, Randy Bow. And Randy was like, you know, what? I, th- I think we, we got some help. Like, we, we could we could use you. Um, and so I, I started part time. Right. Like at the te- I, as I was still traveling, training, competing. And these were in the latter days of, of my, my athletic career. And then doing double duty once again, as almost, almost as I did in law school. Wow. That's awesome. That's, that, that's really cool. And also like appreciate also kind of like, uh, mention a little bit about, uh, about your role there at, uh, monumental sports. Um, what, what made you decide and how did that, uh, your next opportunity come about with, with work at the MLS? Yeah. Yeah. So played, played soccer growing up, always been a soccer slash slash football fan. And so that was also timing, right? They, they had someone in a role and it was, it was a quasi legal role as well. Um, that person was leaving to join one of the major league soccer teams. And I was also looking for like a more robust position, like a more of a full-time role. Cause what I was at, when I was doing at monumental was the double duty of like training, traveling, competing and my monumental work. Right. And so I wanted to actually dive into something that allowed me to no longer compete, sink my teeth fully into this sports role. Um, and, and it really was, it really was just timing, right? Like they had a role that had opened up. They had a need for someone who had a legal background because what I was doing there was, was in, in like it was uh, tangential to like the player contracts that the, that the players have with the league. And so it, it ended up being that, you know, I, I interviewed there, Major League Baseball, the, N, the NBA. I interviewed a few places, right? Because at this point in time, my, I wasn't competing anymore. Wasn't training or traveling. My family was in New York. Uh, again, as we said, when I went to law school, I was like, I'm going to be in the sports world, but I'll probably go to a league. Maybe I'll go to a team. Monumental at the time didn't have a need for me to take on like a much larger role. And so I said, great, like I'll, I'll I'm a free agent. I'll, I'll go somewhere. And so, you know, I, I again, I, I was deciding between Major League Soccer, 
Major League Baseball in the NBA. I had a, a former college, a classmate of mine who was at Major League Soccer. And I could also see the vision of what the league, what, what it had, the path it taken and where it was going. And so the role itself also allowed me to be close to the athletes, right? Like I, I was, I did player relations and competition, which meant I was close to the players. I did player contracts, player agreements. I worked with the players union. Um, I served on, on a couple committees like like the medical committee there and so i got to be close to sports i got to be in a growing league and a growing sports in the u.s i kind of got to be at the forefront of this new resurgence of soccer in the states as well and so yeah a lot of it was timing but but it really was like at that point in time i was like i, I want to like really dive into the sports world I, I want a bigger role let me go up to new york and and check out all the leagues and see which one has the best role and this one was less legal than the others I was looking at and also allowed me to be closer to the sport than um, I think the NBA and the MLB role that, roles that I was looking at. Yeah, I mean, it's such an interesting time in the MLS, I'd imagine, um, uh, back when back when you worked there. I mean, even now, it's such an interesting time in, in terms of how the, how the sport has grown. Obviously, like like the stars that have been able to even come across and be part of it, and as well as some of like the uh, very creative kind of contracts that they've worked out through um, uh, with 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 some of the stars, I, I think from like a legal perspective, that must've been, you know, pretty fascinating. Yeah, no, it was, it was. And so when I was there, that Zlatan Ibrahimovic had come over. So I, I got to help with his deal and a few others, right? So Zlatan coming over similar to, to Messi, not the same caliber of player, but Zlatan's coming over, what was a big deal. And then also on the competition side, I got to see behind the curtains of like how the MLS made its rules, how they did deals with the players, how they brought and, and wooed some of these players over and we're also expanding the league at that time, too. So Nashville came in when I was there. Cincinnati, um, maybe one or two other teams came into the league. When I, while Atlanta, this was Atlanta's first year in the league while I was there, too. So exciting times, even more exciting times ahead, of course, now with Messi here and a few other players coming. So, yeah, yeah, it was, it was really, really cool. I remember Zlatan's ad in the um, L.A. Times when he came. Yeah. Um, when, he, when he took out like a whole page and he just said, it says, it says uh, Dear Los Angeles, you're welcome. Like just in, like unreal. Yeah, the most Zlatan moment ever. But it was it was big for the league. It was big for L.A. And I remember like being there at, at his first match for the Galaxy and having him score two goals and the way yeah, he scored. Yeah, I remember like, that. And, he, and like off the bench, he came off the bench against LAFC. I remember that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that that was yeah, that was really really amazing. But yeah, great great times. And then to your point, I got to be. I was working in sports, so I was like, all right, I, I'm good. I'm I am happy. I'm here. I made it. Like I, I can stay. I can grow in this league, which is also growing. Yeah. I got a role that I love. I had a team that was great. I had like like everyone at, at Major Soccer was really really amazing. Um, so yeah, it was good times. It was really good times. But why did you leave? So you had all this, you had, you had, you had all this going, you had a league that was growing, right? It was, th th there's a lot of, I mean, even like, even just thinking about it from, you know, like a brand perspective, um, like I remember one, um, one, one kind of beverage expert telling me how, you know, like the, the rise of Celsius, for example, um, the, the energy drink. And like, they actually lashed on themselves from MLS, like when, like, like a decade ago. And like, that was part of the reason why they, they probably not the obvious, not the only reason, but like what an incredible, you know, league to be a part of during that kind of growth spurt that I'm sure was like a lot cheaper to do than, you know, the, the, um, NFL and maybe NBA and, and, and NBA and what have you. And so just saying that like so many have like lashed on and, and MLS has really like helped like drive, um, 
um, um, so, uh, some brands, and obviously because MLS has just grown so much in the past, you know, couple decades. Why leave? Yeah, you know, it, it's funny. I had, I think, uh, a, gr- a really smart recruiter <laughs> who had some foresight, uh, sent me an email, and they were kind of like, "What? What the email said essentially?" I, I think I probably still have it somewhere. It was like, "Jay Z is looking for someone who can do X, Y, and Z, and has an interest in A, B, and C." do you know anyone who might be interested or would you be interested? Right. And so, and I, I'm guessing that's a recruiter tactic, right? Like, do you know anyone who's interested? And I, I was like, I, you know, if, if this is a real email, I might be interested. Right. And so that, that led to like me making the, like the difficult decision, especially like, cause I, I was happy at major league soccer, but left for a, a lot, a lot, a lot more money. Right. So part of his ambition, but, but, but then the, the other piece of it, it was like uh, just the idea of, you know, at that point in time, like what Jay meant and does mean to the culture, the opportunity to do work, especially the sort of work that I was going to be doing there was was and was once in life and to have an impact on the culture at large, to, to work with a, a black entrepreneur like that who's created what he's created. That There was an allure there. Right. And that's that's what I told the, the folks at MLS. Like, man, I love it here. I'm happy here. But this is an opportunity. It's, it's, it's tough to say no to this opportunity. And especially like what it became during my time there too. And so, you know, like I said, it was a smart recruiter um, who who just happened to, especially because my background, I hadn't done anything like the work that I eventually ended up doing at Rock Nation. Um, so yeah, I got one of these days I got to talk to that recruiter. Like, so how how did you know? Like, what what in my profile said said to reach out to me? But yeah, no, I, I was wooed away. I was wooed away by by both a recruiter and by the Rock Nation label um and and by by jay-z's allure as well um and it's i mean as you say like it's it's kind of seems like very very different in terms of like your previous roles at like you know working for um uh monumental sports which obviously you know with working with the wizards the capitals and and obviously georgetown with with georgetown's uh some of their games going um um being played at, at, at the verizon center and then um and then of course you know with mls working for a league um this is like a transition into, um, you know, um, I mean, still obviously sports is part of it, right? Cause they also have like their own sports agency, but can you, can you tell me a little bit about how rock nation is kind of structured? I know it's a, it, 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 it's a JV between, um, uh, Rockefeller, uh, records, Jay-Z's label. Right. Um, and then also like live nation, if you can like, but we'd love to kind of learn more about a bit of the history. How did that kind of come about? And, and overall, like, how like the decision making kind of happens yeah yeah so it's it's so what i would say it's jay-z in signing his deal with live nation as part of that was to do a joint venture that ended up becoming rock nation so i'd say i'd say it's like it's more jay-z personally than than rockefeller records because rockefeller eventually like rockefeller was like a previous entity but this was like the reimagination of it, right? And so re- reimagining of it. So, so it almost like tied it to, it, it kind of was like the evolution of Rockefeller. It, exactly, it's the evolution. It's new business partners, new ambitions, and so on and so forth. And so um, Jay and his deal with Live Nation included, hey, like l- let's create a joint venture to, that that became Rock Nation. Rock Nation is uh, one part management, one part record label slash publishing, and then also you've got sports. And then you got a few other things as well. Like I, I'd, I'd say... There are events. There is a venture arm to Rock Nation, but it is um, it, it's a conglomerate to some extent, right? Whereas, and also Jay's businesses are separate from Rock Nation itself, right? So it's not like 
the Kanye, Jace Kanyak or Shane or any of those things sits under Rock Nation. Rock Nation is uh, artist management, record label, publishing, venture arm, and then sports, of course, and then you've got some events, right? There's a, there's a mu- music festival and so on. Um, and then, of course, JS Chairman, but, but you had a proper executive team, right? You had your sports, your sports executives across football, baseball, basketball, and so on. Um, when I was there, there was also a TV and film division, a, 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 a you know, growing TV and film division. Um, you had CEO who's based out here in LA. You had a COO who was based in New York and ran the New York office. So you, you got two offices. Um, and then you had a, a whole slew of, of amazing artists, both on the management side and on the label side. Um, and so Jay, of course, um, is, is, it's, it's his company, but he has um, set multiple co-founders, I think, uh, three or four other co-founders. Um, and they ended up summing them, some of them serve in like day-to-day roles and others just serve in the board capacity. But yeah, yeah, it, it ended up being for me a great experience, but from a decision-making it's, it's run at that board and executive level, almost like you would any other agency or management company or, or, um, or corporate enterprise. Got it. No, that makes that makes some um, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and I also understand too, like like in terms of like 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 the cognac and um, like maybe like consumer goods. So that's kind of out. That's kind of outside Rock Nation. If that is is that right? Yeah, exactly. And and so what happened was I, I worked directly for uh, Desiree Perez, who was at that time chief operating officer, who is now CEO of Rock Nation. Um, she also works very closely with Jay and all of his businesses. And so in my working with Desiree, I got to do all the Rock Nation stuff as senior director of operations and then also help when and where needed on anything Desiree and Jay were involved in, which is on separately. Right. So Jay, Jay's separate enterprise and business entity is, is where, you know, you, you've got title, the streaming platform, you've got do say the cognac, Armand de Brignac, the champagne. Um, while I was there, I launched a book publishing division that was part of Rock Nation. And then on the flip side, you also had a cannabis business that was part of, of Jay's enterprise, right? So I kind of got to sit in the middle uh, of the, the Rock Nation and, and the, the Jay-Z businesses and, and like get a, a not just a bird's eye view of it all, but a ground floor view of, of it all as well. This episode is brought to you by Propeller Industries. If you run a high growth business and you're focused on profitability, extending your runway and improving your operational efficiency, you probably need to finance an accounting whiz that will grow with you. Well, instead of hiring someone full-time, what would be cost-effective is working with Propeller Industries. Propeller Industries is a leading strategic finance and accounting partner for venture stage companies and has partnered with over a thousand startups and high growth businesses across consumer products, consumer tech, and enterprise. Some of the brands that they've worked with are Liquid Death, Olipop, Hymns, Farmer's Dog, Away, Movie Pass, and Giphy. Propeller also provides specialized support for fundraising and MA with transaction advisory services. Propeller's TA team of former investment bankers and investors can step in on more of a project basis when pursuing full scale financing and MA. There's a link to Propeller Industries in the show notes if you want to learn more information. Well, so, so how, what was your role and how did you spend your time? If you're kind of balancing between Jay-Z's like consumer, consumer businesses, um, you know, monogram title, um, um, and, and everything versus, you know, the, um, rock nation, which is, um, as you say, like you like started a publishing company and then as well as you have the management, you have the label, you have, you have, um, you have, of course, like the venture arm and events business, like 
how was was your did you lean more so on like the consumer goods side and the actual on the actual like inventory based businesses or did you lean more towards on like the um on like the service provider um kind of business with like the agency side and like the management that sort of thing it's a good question so so my title is senior director of operations um which really meant jack of all trades master of some uh, I, would, I wouldn't say I wouldn't say master of none. There's some stuff I was I was pretty I was, I was decent at, um, and I spent my time putting out fires. <laughs> is what I tell people. But but in terms of like division of time, it was probably I'd, I'd say fifty fifty, right? And so fifty percent. And a lot of that is because like Desiree herself as CEO just has like some so much on her plate, right? Like run Rock Nation, run Jay Z Empire, which is its own like huge conglomerate. And so I went anywhere and everywhere that I was needed at any time. It meant very, 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 very little sleep. But also like on the Rock Nation side, I could do anything from redo the employee handbook with legal counsel, spin up an internship program. We opened two new offices while I was there. So help oversee the office construction project. Um, I also worked very closely with a handful of art. I got a platinum plaque out of it, which I never would have imagined. Um, especially going to law school where I'm going for sports. I never would have imagined getting a platinum plaque working with Meek Mill. But but part of it was like at some point, Desiree, there are some artists that Desiree also counsels very closely. And so I got to a place where if Desiree wasn't available, I'm the next best thing, right? So I, I'm in the studio with Meek Mill. I'm at a concert with Yo Gotti. I'm in a meeting with Lil Uzi Vert or with Alicia Keys. And so, so at Rock Nation, I got to do everything operationally. I got to do a little bit of management I got to help oversee the Made in America Music Festival because that's, that's operations as well. So there were times where I'm in a meeting with the city council of Philadelphia or the mayor uh, of Philadelphia because, you know, if Des can't be there, again, I'm the next best thing. And we've got this festival that requires a ton of planning. And then on top of that, the other 50 percent is everything Jay was doing that Desiree has purview over. Right. So there were times where. She's like, I can't be there. You got to be there. Or I don't have the time to be there. So you got to be there. So I might take a day trip to France to check out the inventory and on the champagne. Or I might meet with the the JV business partners in Miami for a few hours and I'm I'm all over the place. But I'd say it was probably 50-50 in terms of the consumer stuff that, that needed help. Um, and again, like Des and Jay are the final arbiters, but I, I'm there like in the weeds helping to see what needs to happen and helping to helping to um, at least advise on decisions before they make their decisions. And then the other 50% was everything Rock Nation. Everything Rock Nation, like I said, could be ops. It could be management. It could be uh, HR work. It could be legal work and, and everything in between. So. I, I appreciate that kind of like demonstrating on, on both sides what what kind of the day-to-day responsibilities um, um, are, which it seems like it's kind of all encompassing. And like, there's just, um, uh, it's just, it's just, as you say, like it will, it seems like 50, 50 in terms of how your time was spent between um, uh, Jay-Z stuff and then also rock nation. Yeah. And no, no two days were the same, right? Like I think my first day there, I got a stack of printed out emails and and the assignment, it was kind of like um, Jay wants to start a book publishing division go figure out how to do it. Right. So I spent several months figuring out how to spin up a JV. We ended up doing a JV with Penguin Random House to launch what became Rock Lit 101 and now has since published books from Rich Paul and Cece Zabathia and a few other people. Um, but it, it was like, you know, Jay wants to do it, go figure out how to make it happen versus like on the flip side, 
worked very closely with Meek Mill and, and you know, he had a docu-series come out on Amazon, right? So I'm working with Amazon around what does the deal look like and how does it have to be structured and what are you trying to film? And now we're following Meek on trying to film and capture all that stuff. And then the next day I could be in Miami for a quarterly board review meeting of Doucet. And we're talking to Bacardi about how much liquid we have and are there shortages and how we fix the shortages, how much marketing dollars should be put in. Um, so like literally no two days were the same, but on top of that, it was here, there, and everywhere, but it was like a tremendous learning experience as a result. Why did Jay-Z want to start a book publishing division? Yeah, I think a lot of it was to, it's the same reason he has Rock Nation as a whole and title and so on and so forth, was A, to give a platinum for artists, a, a platform for artists to tell their stories in an unfiltered, unadulterated way, and, and also to be artists first, right? There's a reason that title, even to this day, spins out the, the most royalties for artists than, uh, versus any other platform. It's, it's, and it's not even close. And so from the book publishing standpoint, it's like it's, it's why like a Rich Paul can choose to, to publish his book on Rocklet 101 or CC Sabathia or anyone to that effect, right? So the, the deals, um, I'd say are artists are artist-friendly. But beyond that, it's not like, you know, when it comes to like what the what the artist or the athlete or whoever is saying, it, it allows the, the, the clients of Rock Nation to have a place where they can tell their story and do so in a way where they know like Hachette Books or Simon & Schuster, the editor at Simon & Schuster is not going to like spin their words or try to soften or make it any particular way. It's like th this is a place where you can tell your story, whatever that story is. And also it's an outlet for, for folks in Rock Nation who like, you know, in some cases might not get book deals or might not have a platform to tell that story from a typical publisher to, to be able to do that. And, and yeah, they, they still have their their protocols and boxes you have to check in terms of which books are published because you still got to do good business. But but it really was intent on being a platform for folks to, to say what they have to say. Um, and that, that that's always been, I, I think, his MO, right, is, is uplifting artists, athletes, entertainers and, and everyone else. But allowing them to kind of own their destiny to some extent. That makes sense. Another kind of outlet for them too. another, another kind of way um, to kind of share your story, not just, you know, obviously through song, through, uh, uh, through music, another, uh, another art for them to do it. Another, another, another avenue um, on the consumers, on the consumer goods side to Jay-Z, since obviously you were, you were very involved in that from what you've noticed and the brands that you've worked with, what do you think is kind of Jay-Z's criteria when it comes to buying a stake or getting involved with a brand? So I think a, a few things. I think first is authenticity with what he stands for and with how it's going to relate or be received by the people. It's got to look and feel and be authentic to him. But, but in general, like whatever it is, has to be authentic as a brand. And it has to connect with people in a way that isn't just about like, oh, it's got his name on it, right? No, it's, it's got to be like a real meaningful connection. I do think the other piece is like, for him, it's not the idea of building a brand on his back or just because it has his name. Like that, that's, that's never been a thing for him, right? Like put my face here and use my face to market X product. I think the other piece is understanding that the business is good business and the product is a great product, whether or not he's involved. And then aside from that, can he come aboard and add value in terms from, from like a creative direction standpoint, right? Like, is there a place for him to leave his imprint and leave a mark and and add value creatively in a, in a sense that, because his brand is like, it's always been aspirational. It's always been 
you know, if I, if I can do it, you can do it too. It's always been like leaving a little bit, leaving some gems, a lot of times in his music, leaving some gems and breadcrumbs for people to follow, to get to whatever, whatever their level of achievement is. Um, and so his brands always have that like aspirational quality to it too. So in, for him, I, I know he likes leaving his, his imprint on, on whatever it is, but he also wants to make sure he's able to add value and move the needle in a meaningful way, right? So he's not going to come aboard anything unless he can actually have an impact that, that makes sense. But um, authenticity is a, bit, a big piece. Quality, the quality of the product is also a tremendous piece as well, right? So the cognac has to be excellent. He was the one who's deciding what that taste is. The champagne has to be excellent and, and so on and so forth. Um, and then the last piece, like creatively, is he able to like have an impact that is meaningful and have an impact that will be culturally relevant, but also just move the needle from a business standpoint too. It's not just about attaching his name, name to something just for the sake of doing it. It's about what does his ethos and his involvement in a project mean? And you, you see it nowadays, not as much on the consumers, like he's just killed it on consumer, but even what you see, like the work he's done with some of the, the shows and films he's attached his name to for, for Netflix, right? I think The Harder They Fall was one. They had another one come out. I think for him, he's like, you know, can this, film again to your point another medium right in this case in one case it was book publishing in this case it's film but can this film with his name attached to it does it have cultural cachet will it be authentic to the community will it will does it stand for something does it have some sort of meaning and so on and so forth but he takes that same process through um consumer goods that he's involved in right like is it a great product is it will, will it be meaningful is it authentic to me and to the culture and you know, when, if my name was associated with it, are people going to like scratch their head about it or are they, is it going to make sense in, in a meaningful way? And so, you know, I think those are some of the boxes he definitely has to check. Is, is there like any like wild or fun stories that you have in terms of having Jay-Z maybe have to do something um, in, in, in terms of actually put it, it, it for, for any one of his uh, consumer brands? Oh man, no, Jay's, Jay's different. I think Jay is, he's, he's, he's not, he's not the, I saw the rock had like a tequila truck that they, that they drove cross country and he showed up for Terramana. He's like serving stuff, out of, serving tacos out of the truck. That, that ain't, that That's ain't not Jay. Jay. <laughs> but, but like, you know, as we were putting together monogram, the cannabis brand, you know, we had a meeting. I think that this is years ago. This is pre things have since fallen apart for them, but like, I think we met with the MedMen team, the CEO team, and and Jay was in the room, right? Like to meet the CEO and the CFO and the CMO about partnering on something, an idea that he had, right? And so he he was very present in that way where it's like, I will add heft where I need to add heft. Otherwise, I'm here for creative input, right? Like especially like if the CEO of Bacardi is like, all right, we need to have a meeting of the minds, that that's Jay's thing. Or, you know, it's MedMen or anything like that, right? And so he was very smart about when and where he he added that you know utilized the leverage that he had and the star power that he had that he had, but but also also always true to himself, which is uh, again like I know he preaches it, but I, I think he lives it as well. So it's it's not like he's going to be there like this my thing go get it. I'm showing up the liquor store blah, blah blah like a DJ Khaled, but that's also very authentic for DJ Khaled. It just isn't for Jay, <laughs> so it, it's very different in that way. Yeah, no, 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 that makes sense. I mean, obviously, it's 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 obviously very very different for I've heard of people. I know that when I was talking to um, 
uh, to another person that was close to um, the Troy Aikman eight. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, Troy Aikman has the eight company and Troy was like going bar to bar in Texas and like, you know, dishing out eight. And like, it was like a, kind of like a road show for, you know, a beer and stuff like that. And that was, you know, Troy obviously like, um, um, you know, love to do it and, and everything like that, but it's all, it's all about, you know, what's authentic to, you know, the personality and, 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 and the person that, that, um, that matters, that matters just as much as anything else. Right. Like if it's inauthentic, it's gonna, like if Jay had be like, yo, I'm at the liquor store, go like, go come get you through people to be like, what? Like, and it also would have hurt the mystique that he has and his brands have. Um, and, and that, that's part of what works for him. It's part of what makes what he's done so far so successful. What have you learned? Because obviously Jay-Z is also sold, you know, a, a few of his business obviously has done extremely well from it um, overall. What have you learned um, as an observer in terms of when is the right time to sell through through like that experience? Yeah. So I think what I've learned, especially like being alongside the, these processes is when you feel or you know or you see that there isn't any more value for you and your team to get out of it on your own, right? And so a lot of times a strategic will come in and, and can plug your brand or company into their thing and take it to a, an entirely different level or stratosphere. And so it doesn't mean like you sell out entirely and you might sell a portion of it, right? But at some point you'll get a company uh, and especially with, even with talent, even with talent, you'll get a company to a place where it's like, we can't take it any further than we have to this point. Um, and plugging into a larger system allows us to kind of continue the, this journey that we're on. That That's a big piece of it. And, all, and also being transparent about where you are, where the company is and what you're able to achieve is important as well. Right. And so, you know, that that meant on our end, we had to have some hard conversations on, on everything like on title, Ace of Spades, Ducey, like all of those things around like we, we've taken it as have we taken as far as we can on our own without adding, adding additional dollars or adding additional strategic heft or any, something to that extent, right? So be, being transparent and being honest with yourself, sometimes taking a sober look in the mirror and, and appreciating the idea of like, great, like we as a small nimble team, I've gotten it here. In order for us to like get true to the next level, we need a little bit of strategic help. Uh, in order for us to go global, sometimes to go global, we need some strategic help. Let's sell a chunk or a piece or all of it. Like sometimes you just fall out of love with a thing. You're like, oh, let someone else take it off my hands. But but really like just being honest and being open about with yourself around like, have we gotten the most out of it? And if we can, or if you've gotten close to the most out of it, maybe it's time to like start finding a strategic to help get it to that next level, whatever that next level might be. Yeah. And also, um, I think those are great points. I think also like, um, like what is the ambition of the company too? You know, is it, is the ambition to just to, uh, to keep it as is, which is great. And it could be like a great cash flowing business. Right. Um, and maybe you want, and maybe you never want to sell it, but is it, is it to take a new heights? Okay. Like maybe this is, you know, a really compelling offer. And, um, and so, you know, and, and, and this company, it's not like this company's going to die. Like obviously they're, uh, they're, they're spending a, a, a good amount on this company. And so we wanted to see, to, uh, to actually release it to global heights. So it really kind of also depends, um, as like an operator and owner, like what your, what your ambitions are for the company. 
so why did you leave? It sounded awesome. Why? Why again? Why again did you leave uh, 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 Jay Z and Rock Nation to head over to um, uh, to Westbrook, which is Will and Jada Pinkett Smith's company? Yeah, you know what? I, I saw an opportunity to be a part of something that was a little bit earlier on than when I jumped on the train at, at Rock Nation, right? So Westbrook was just getting the ball rolling. They'd had ambitions of like being kind of like to have a multi-pronged approach to things, both consumer, TV, film, media, marketing, and so on. And then, um, again, another opportunity that, that I couldn't refuse, right? And so I was recently married at the time, came came to the West Coast um, and wanted to take a stab at helping be a part of building something, right? Like Rock Nation was, was a well-oiled machine. I feel like I had a tremendous value there, but not as much value as I anticipated building like this is a new thing. Let's, let's help build it from the ground up. And so when I got here and I helped uh, in an operational capacity and I worked directly with the COO again at, at Westbrook to kind of set the foundation and get the ball rolling on things and then slid over to oversee Westbrook's consumer product division, right? Which was even more, I don't know, like it, what I did at Rock Nation and with Jay was very diverse, apparel, cannabis, books, cognac, uh, you know, but, but at, at, at Westbrook, it might've been even more so, right. Only because I also did like licensing and e-commerce. And then we incubated brands from scratch. We did coffee, personal care. We did apparel again. And, and so a, a long list of things that I was able to, to kind of help be a part of and steer, steer the ship on a little bit. And so I think all of those things, were, were what wooed me to, to come over, right? To be a part of building something from the ground up. That, that was that was that was a lot of, of the appeal. Yeah, because Jay Z's brands too, like they were all done through JVs or like or like a partnership with another company. Is that right? Um, they weren't they weren't kind of like incubated, like or or is that wrong there? Most of them, most of them. So Paper Planes is is wholly owned, built from scratch, the apparel brand. Um, Armand de Brignac, the 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 champagne ace of spades wholly owned by, by Jay and, and built, from, built from scratch for the most part. Like the champagne existed, but Jay bought the entirety of it and added his, his special sauce to it. Um, Doucet is a joint venture with Bacardi, as everyone knows. And and, um, <clears throat> and Monogram is a joint venture with Kaliva. So, you know what I mean? Like he, he, he's done it multiple ways. Exactly, multiple ways. T- title was, was wholly owned, already existed. He purchased it. So it was kind of like, you know, an acquisition. Um, and then, you know, a lot of that knowledge and experience is, is what I wanted to bring to Westbrook as well. So talk to me a little bit about how you thought about, you know, incubating brands. I know, I believe Westbrook started out as like the media, um, like a media, more like media focused company. Why, why move into consumer goods? What was the opportunity and how even did you think about launching these kind of brands from, from the start? I think there's two, two, two places, right? Like why consumer goods is like at some point, you know, Disney is really a tremendous and very, very large consumer goods company, right? Because you have IP that you own that you want to monetize, right? So there was a piece of Westbrook's consumer goods ambitions that were tied to TV and film and IP in general. And and also because like Will owned the Fresh Prince trademark, which he licensed to the company, which the company sublicensed. So at some point you're like, we have IP that we can monetize. Consumer goods is a great place to do that. Let, let's let's that's one silo. The other piece of it is, and the other ambition was like, Will and Jada always viewed Westbrook as a platform for artists to express themselves through TV, through film, through podcast, and then potentially through brand and consumer. And so the other piece was like incubating brands with talent was a big deal. But my thought of it, especially seeing like Jay's multiple structures, 
my preferred structure is find a great partner and a great partnership structure or a great legal agreement and figure out ways so that you have an operator who can run it and you as talent can do what you do best, which is, as, as we said earlier, supercharge whatever that brand is, right? So I, I'm not too fond of like, I'm buying 100% of this company, I'm going to run it myself. It, it's not, it's not for me, I don't think the most efficient way for talent to add value or to build or scale a company. For me, it's kind of like, is there someone who's doing it? Either you acquire the company and, and you kind of let that team do it and you you add your special sauce to it or you invest in the company or if you're incubating from scratch, it it's ideally is a partnership with an operator who knows how to operate that business and can do it from there. And so that's why like I think there were some things from from a structural standpoint with the Duce partnership that could have been improved. But having Bacardi steering the ship on the cognac is is the best thing, right? Like securing cognac and deal, like that that's that's all of that stuff is exactly what you want to happen versus you know being a hero and i'm, I'm going to start my own cognac business from scratch so like i tell talent all the time you don't need to start anything from scratch you don't need to be the hero find a great partner who you can plug into you do what you do well they do what they do well and everyone can kind of ride off into the sunset you know no, totally. And I, I, I understand it too, just, just with, um, with Westbrook and when it comes to consumer goods, I understand like merchandise, um, uh, the merchandise opportunities when it came to, you know, the Fresh Prince, um, logo and what have you. But I think to your point, the product needs to be great. Right. And, and, and obviously like maybe it shouldn't be like talent led for the product to be great. Find like a great operator, um, find a great operator or someone that actually, um, uh, can build an incredible product, right? That's what what Jay Z was attracted to with with the cognac, right? And the and, and the champagne. So, um, how, for example, coffee? How did you guys? How, how did you all go about doing coffee? And why did you see that there was an opportunity, for example, within coffee? Yeah, at that point in time, and and, and it's it's a project. I don't even know if it if it'll great great project, and and they they may still release it, but at some point. I think it was authentic because people didn't realize how much of a coffee, I can't even say coffee lover, like coffee fanatic Will is. And 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 so that that was the through line there, right? And so we, we didn't end up uh, releasing it in the time that I was there. And I, I think it's still something that they have up their sleeve potentially, but the, the opportunity to storytell around Will's fascination and fanaticism and love for coffee partnered with his own, as we said, authentic signature blend that was kind of like tailored to his palate, that that was, that was an, an ultimate goal for us, right? And so we always went around like, what is authentic? And and so for him, it was coffee, of, of all things, of, of all things, right? Like to understand like his love, his fanaticism, the obscene, the obscene number of cups that he drinks a day, <laughs> among among other things, that, that, was, that was a big part for us and, and why we went with coffee. Got it. Got it. Got it. So what led, and I know you, you, you had a stint at, uh, at, at, at Raptive, um, but what, what led you to founding your old VC firm, Freedom Trail Capital? What was like the impetus behind it? Yeah. You know what? It was more opportunistic than anything. Like I, I had worked with and experienced success, like as an operator in these talent led brands. And so what I wanted to do was, and also like just seeing, or at least trying to skate to where the puck is going in terms of the consumer space and and the fact that like talent-led brands nowadays and it's funny because i saw a quote from mark andreessen re- recently where he's talking about like talent-led brands and celebrity-led brands are the future are probably the future of consumer 
um, seeing like the success that we had there and wanting to at least um, be involved there, right? So I had a couple of deals that someone I knew had brought had brought to my tailor table. Um, I'd always had deal flow just by being in Jay's orbit and Will's orbit and, and being in LA, like you just always have deal flow. Um, and a couple came through that we didn't even end up pulling the trigger on, but a couple came through that were good enough where I was like, Hey, I could spin up an SPV just to do these and try to raise capital. Or I can do a fund where I can try to find multiple opportunities like this that I have access to that other people don't typically have access to, right? Whether it's talent led deals or whether it's like deals that, could be good for talent where I can bring it to contacts that I have and then try to bring talent aboard after the fact, which is something that we do as a fund as well. And so it was really like seeing these deals where I was like, this is cool, but it seems like, you know, there are consumer funds. There are even like a couple of celebrity funds nowadays, but there, there aren't many that a are founded by operators who have like operated and built these businesses B are taking advantage of the arbitrage opportunity around like, this is a great company that could be authentic for this talent partner. Let's bring that person in and see if we can supercharge it. And then C, I also wanted to kind of like look for brands that sat at the intersection of culture, lifestyle, and influence. And so, but a lot of it was just leaning on, you know, these couple of deals that, again, we didn't end up doing, but a couple of deals where I was like, these are great. And I think there's a market here to be served. And also consumer in general, not just CPG, but like consumer in general, um, there's a value add that talent and only talent can bring to the table. And Ryan Reynolds, like at the time, it also helped that Ryan Reynolds had won with Aviation Gin and then he won with Mint Mobile. And then now he's got this FinTech thing we're doing, but he also has his marketing company uh, where people are seeing like the value of talent if utilized correctly. Um, that, that, was, that was kind of the, the sweet spot that I wanted to serve. But it, it was more opportunistic than anything. I have a few consulting clients now and, you know, after – leaving Westbrook and then, and then spending some time at Raptive. I work with, with talent nowadays who are very entrepreneurial, right? And they're like, help me get some structure. Help me think through how I can build this thing. I have this idea. I have this product. How do I make it a business? And then on the flip, on the investing side, we're looking for like really great run businesses that can utilize talent or are utilizing talent and can do so better and so that little, a little bit of arbitrage opportunity that we can leverage as a fund as well. I feel like now there are a lot of talent-led brands. And there's a lot of talent associated with brands. It's, um, uh, and um, some of them have done well. Some of them have done, have done poorly. In your mind, what actually, what is that right balance? Um, what actually needs to work? How are you, how are you kind of um, analyzing in terms of, when talent and brand come together, when does it actually mesh to actually make something great? And as well as, is there particular categories that you think are ripe for talent or categories that you think that actually talent is very, there's like so many talent-led brands, it's really saturated. Um, does it make sense to like launch another brand in like this space, for example? Yeah, so I don't think it's saturated. I don't think it can get saturated. And the, the reason I think that is like, at some point, the reason it works is because it's, has to be in talk talk about why why it works for Jay, right? Like it's gotta be authentic. Right. And so at some point, not just authentic, but it's gotta you have to have a quality bit. Like if you don't have a great business, the thing just isn't gonna work. It's not gonna take off no matter what. If you have a great product, Travis Scott and Cacti, right? Like Travis Scott's top of the world. You got Budweiser, I think Budweiser was behind Cacti. They released this hard seltzer thing. It's everywhere. It's going like gangbusters. And then the thing doesn't taste good. It's not a good product, right? It's, it's not going to go. And so when we as a fund do our due diligence, and in general, when I think these things actually work, 
is when you have a great product that it has a reason to exist, is differentiated in the marketplace for in some way. When you have a quality brand, right? Like it's not just about like, I got a product and I slap someone's name on it. But when you actually put some thought into brand, brand story, brand architecture, brand equity, those things we talked about before, when you can actually cultivate a community when you have a founding and executive team or an operational partner that knows how to run these things and operate and be efficient. And then your last consideration is the talent and how you leverage that talent. That's where it can be successful. And then on top of that, in order for it to be successful, it's gotta be authentic, right? So like if the product is great and the brand is good and the operating team or the executive team is excellent and they can run an efficient business and then you're utilizing talent appropriately, not to like build the brand, but to tell the story of the brand in a way that's authentic, then you can actually win, right? And so at some places, if you've got consumers that are like, mm, I'm not buying it, that sounds like BS. Or in some places, if you've got people who are like, that seems fake, like, you know, like I'm not going to point any fingers, but you have, you have alcohol brands founded by people who you know don't drink or you know are struggling with sobriety or, you know, things like that. I think you're going to struggle, right? And so you still have to have a great product. It's not just about slapping a name on it. You still have to have a quality business. You still have to have great distribution. You still have to have great margins. You still, like all those things that make good businesses are a necessity. And then you have to have talent that can authentically tell the story of why they're involved. It's not just like, oh, it's a money grab. It's like, no, I think that talent partner needs to make sense for whatever whatever the brand or the product of the company is, where it's a believable story that you're telling now you can do something, right? And be, what you can do is connect that talent's following to the consumer for that product. The product can like use the celebrity as a proxy for making their own decision. And, and we do it all. It, it's why we've been like endorsements have always been a thing. It's all you have celebrity endorsements. It just, it just so happens that nowadays celebrities are more entrepreneurial. So they're taking a piece of the company. Like so when Beyonce says, pay me an equity, it, it's it, it's still you've always had endorsers and you've always had endorsements for a long long time it's just a new model to it right and so now the other thing is like us as a fund we're category agnostic within consumer so i tell people like we do cpg of course but consumer tech consumer ai SaaS, all those things and again i i don't think there's a limit on where talent can be successful as long as it's 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 a it's authentic and it makes sense and it's a believable story right so if you told me i don't know like if if kim kardashian had a shopify competitor and she was like i started this company because we were running skims and skims weren't working xyz so we started this company and i use this shopify whatever it is for all of my companies on my inventory and that's why i started it it's believable right and so at some point you get the authenticity behind it and so i i think it's also very much about storytelling Right. It's got to be woven into the story of the brand and the company in a way that is authentic, not just believable, not just like if you tell it, will people believe it? Can you trick them into believing it? It's got to actually feel authentic. But, yeah, I, I don't you know, what I mean, like, again, Ryan Reynolds with Mint Mobile. Right. Like people are like, oh, it's a cell phone company. But he was able to weave in his reason for being involved there his value add for Mint Mobile, why Mint Mobile was competitive and, and and actually take that from where it was when he got involved to new heights. He's he's trying his hand again with this fintech company he's invested in. And for that reason, again, like, like we said, like use talent to be top of the sales funnel. When you get people in that sales funnel, is it believable? Is it authentic? Do they have a reason for being like, cool, this makes sense. Let me find out more. When you get them to find out more, 
the product has to be great. The brand has to be great. It's got to connect with people. It's got to be sticky and all those things still. It can't just be about like, again, like a cacti, for example, like Travis, that thing, it blew the doors off of places when, when it like started, right? It was everywhere and everyone tried it. Then they drank it and they're like, this is not very good. <laughs> and so then you're in trouble. Then you're in trouble, right? And so it's, it's all, you got you to gotta run a good business. You got to have a good product. And then you got to use talent appropriately. Yeah, well, I was just trying to think because I, I think that's a really interesting kind of um, thesis that you have and that not just consumer goods, but also, you know, consumer tech um, um, and consumer AI companies. I'm trying to think if there has been like examples of like a consumer tech company that as um, a successful consumer tech company that had that, that was talent led. Um, um, I'm just trying to think because title wasn't really like a success from like that capacity. I'm just trying to think of like a title, like title wasn't so much like a success from like that like in like that kind of way yeah not not in that way but you know I mean, judging from the exit they had it's successful it's a success to somebody right but but yeah but 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 it's um but you're right like, title is probably a good example right like, at some point and, and i don't think it, it, it achieves the heights that even jay wanted to especially like where spotify and apple music are but for him like to tell the story of like it's artist-led it's artist-founded i created this because i wanted a platform that i could have utilized and so on and so forth um I don't, again, I guess Mint Mobile is quasi CPG. Quasi, yeah, quasi I was, I was, I, I was thinking about Mint. Um, if if Mint would kind of qualify for that, um, and, and you, you'll get some, I think, very soon, especially in the AI space, you'll get some creatives who are are going to be like, I, I use this to create whatever content, blah blah. blah. And like you, you're going to get to, and I, I've seen it from us, like I, I've seen a few of those come through that I think. I have a, a very good sense they're going to be very successful in the not too distant future. Um, so yeah, so so those those, those are, are big ones, but it's it's got to be believable and authentic. And nowadays with this creator economy, you'll get folks who are like, yeah, it's a tech thing, but I use it to do X, Y, and Z. And I think from a consumer standpoint, people are going to actually welcome that and actually list. Like if Mr. Beast was like, I edit all of my YouTube videos with this AI thing, the thing's going to go crazy. Like let's let's be honest, right? And so. At some point, it's got to be right person, right story, right product, right company, and it'll go. And that's why for us, we're not just like, it's, it's just CPG. It's, yeah, those the talent that can like uh, lift in a consumer tech brand might be, might be few and far between, but they're out there. It's, it, it just has to be right brand, right company, right talent, right product, all of those things. But you, you, can, you can get it to go. Yeah, no, that's a great, it's a great... Um... It, it is a great point. It, it is like just like thinking back through um, totally, totally understand like the use case. Um, certainly when it comes to um, creators, you know, um, uh, and that I mean, that that Mr. Beast example that that you said, I use like this, this, um, uh, uh, this program to like edit like all my videos, like 100% could see that you know, um, maybe doing quite well, if obviously like the technology is that good. Um, um, and people actually want to, you know, purchase again and again and again. Um, you gotta, you gotta um, have a great product, right? That, that's, that's really like that. That's, that's what matters. And in that case, maybe you might like, maybe the software, the AI serves on a per edit. You can do like a monthly subscription or you can do like a per edited video. I don't know. So something to that effect, but to your point, it has to be that good. Or if, uh, Steve Aoki or DJ Jazzy Jeff had like a DJing software, right? Like th those are, those are the, like, eventually you'll get like a software thing where someone like that, Calvin Harris, like, like 
I use, you know, like back in the days when Fruity Loops came out, if Fruity Loops, like the, the actual like editing software was a thing, you know what I mean? Like a producer, like uh, nowadays you have like star producers could be like, I edit on this software and, you know what I mean? So, so I, I do think, and that, that's why we're category agnostic. Um, I think celebrity tequila is overdone, but you know, someone could prove because you, you asked about like categories that I think are too saturated. Um, I, I'm over tequila, but that that's just me. And then you know, who, who knows? Like if there's an innovation in the tequila space that someone can come out with, then then uh, more power to them. I, I think it's just tequila, like Reposado, Añejo from a celebrity. I, I think that that is overdone for sure. Okay, so. So, um, ladies and gentlemen, Samir is not investing in tequila anytime soon. It seems. Um, <laughs> but, 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 but there are but other agave, agave based spirits that, that I've, I've heard of and seen like a mezcal and a few others, you know, I, I do think like going back, I, I love this idea of like the consumer tech question too. Like it, it is quite interesting how in the music space you had Jay-Z and title, you had Neil Young creating like his own music player. I remember that. Um, I think it was called like Lalo or something like that. I remember him going on, um, on, I think it was David Letterman and like, and like talking about it back in the day, but it is interesting how like the winner turned out not to be, you know, some, um, a, a company that, you know, had that kind of like talent led, which is just quite interesting. Um, cause you would have thought that, you know, these like big, you know, m- musical figures, obviously, um, uh, that it would be maybe come from, um, that uh, the, the, the technology would be, um, they'd be kind of part of that technology moving forward. So that is, that, that is quite interesting. Um, how how do you diligence like the actual company itself? Because I mean, obviously you understand like the talent side, and of course you have like the operations experience um, uh, uh, from yourself. But like to, in your mind, how do you truly find like okay, this is truly a great product, and I now want to supercharge it with trying to maybe bring talent involved or if talents involved. Like I want to be part of that. But how do you how do you actually diligence like like the product itself, whether it's a brand, whether it's a, a piece of technology? Yeah, yeah, I think twofold. I think a, uh, I look at it from an operational standpoint. Like when you unpack the business, it's like, what's the PL look like? What's the balance sheet look like? What are the margins? What are, how are you operating? So on and so forth. That that's like your typical. It's got to be a good business. But then it's it's also anecdotally, right? Like at some point, uh, how do retailers feel about it? Are you growing in distribution? Are you growing in door count? If it is a product, um, what's the community feel about it? Like what are people saying about it? Are you growing? Is there some sort of velocity in terms of how people are adopting it or growing it. Um, and then, and then you know, there, it's, it's also subjective too, right? It's, at some point, it's like, not only have, have I tried it, but have other people in, in the orbit tried it? What, what do surveys say? What's the NPR? What's the net promoter score? What, what are those things that I think people use to kind of get a sense when you're doing like community listening, right? Like, what are people saying? What's, what's this? And it's, it's also the same reason I know like, talk to people and they look at like they look at cacti and like it didn't taste good that that's an issue so at, at some point you want to know what's the community saying on social what is what's the net promoter score what are the retailers saying what, what are the buyers because at some point when you look at like nielsen ratings you know is it moving off the shelves how is it moving off the shelves what does walmart say about it? what does whole Foods say about it and on all those things right so a, a lot of it is like indiligence it is the objective piece of is this a quality business how are the margins can we improve margins can we help it's a subjective piece of like, what are people saying about it? And, and then when, when I ask what people are saying about it, I'm curious about like retailers and distributors and also the consumer as well, right? Like, so you've got to do a lot of like consumer and community listening to understand like, do people like it? Do people like it? Like, and also that means like, I might not like it. It might not be for me, but 
do people like it um, as a whole and, and both objectively and, and broadly, right? Because no, there's no one thing that's for everybody, but as broadly as possible, um, are people liking whatever it is? And then again, like talking to retailers and looking at Nielsen numbers and looking at all, all of those all of those things that can let you know, like this thing is growing and it's bubbling and people like it and they want more of it. Or if it's like it stays on shelves and you know your store velocity is super low and it's shrinking and blah blah blah, all, all of that makes a big difference. Yeah, that makes sense. Like, do people once they buy it, um, uh, is there like repeat rates? Are people are people coming back for more um, um, and, and what have you? So that it makes total sense. And yeah. then you, you asked, and only because you asked on the tech side, it's not as simple as like looking at Nielsen and like store data and all right. that stuff. But but the other piece of it is like. You know, what's the email list look like? What do, what do socials look like? And then I, I'm going through comments in socials, right? Do people like it? Do they use it? What do they talk about? What are they complaining about? Um, are they subscribing to it? What are the what are the blogs look like? What's Reddit saying? What are the, what are the community saying? What's Discord saying? All of those things kind of add up um, to, to make, make a big difference if, if you're actually like paying attention. And then as an investor, you got to pay attention, but also as an operator, you have to pay attention too, right? At some point, if there are enough people on a Reddit board saying like this part of this app stinks, and I hate it. You got to listen. You got to listen. It's, it's it's how you improve. It's how you get better. It doesn't mean you listen to everything. It doesn't mean that everybody has a point. But um, if if it's loud enough, you have to understand. Like people hate this product. They like this product. They like it except for this one thing or whatever it is. Um, this solves a real problem for them from a tech standpoint. Like, does this app solve a problem for them? Have they been waiting for it? And, and so on and so forth. All of that makes a huge difference. Samir. I feel like I could. I I feel like this interview could have lasted honestly like another hour. It was so much fun talking with you. Thank you. Thank you so much for uh, for your time. I really really appreciate it. Yeah. No. No. Thanks. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. And there you have it. It was a pleasure time with Samir. Samir, thanks again so much for coming on the podcast. If you're enjoying the show, highly recommend checking out consumerbc.com and subscribing to the newsletter. You'll receive all new fundraising updates that that's happening in the world of consumer, and as well as you'll you'll be the first to know when a new episode drops. Thank you again to Propeller Industries for being our sponsor. Thanks for listening.